Hey guys, welcome to episode 104 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So today we're going to be covering the case or cases of Gregory and Zachary Whitman. This is a very intense case and it deals with violence against children. So I just wanted to mention that straight off the bat. So that trigger warning is taken care of. So this case is very unique in many ways, and I've wanted to cover it for years, but I've been waiting for the story to have an ending because of a particular Supreme Court ruling that happened in 2016. So uh, we really got some closure on the story or some kind of semblance of a conclusion in 2019. But, of course, in no way is that ever an ending to the suffering that the Whitman family had to endure for 23 years and still continues to endure. And as I tell you the story, you'll kind of understand that a little bit more. But, John, this is an intense case with a lot of unanswered questions. Okay, so what you're telling me is it's everything that I love. Yes, I think okay. I think you'll find this really interesting. Okay, well, I'm ready. Yeah, so I don't even want to give our typical introduction because I don't want to give anything away. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. So the Whitman family was your average suburban family in the fall of 1998. They had the big, beautiful house in the quaint town of New Freedom, Pennsylvania. They had two sons, Zachary, aged 15, and Greg, aged 13. Both of the boys loved to play sports, loved their family dog, loved their friends, and by all accounts, they loved each other. The parents of the Whitman boys were wealthy. Ron was an investment banker, and Sue worked in a bank herself. They had the means to give their children everything they wanted. Truly a suburban dream come true. That is until October 2nd, 1998. On this day, Zachary was home from school because he didn't feel well. He wanted to spend most of his time in bed, so he figured that he would leave his lanyard, which held his set of house keys, on the inside doorknob of the storm door so that Greg would be able to unlock the actual door of the house when he got home. Usually the two kind of got home at the same time and Zach would always let Greg in because he was the one that had the responsibility of having the house key because both of his parents worked long hours. And during this time, Ron was on a business trip. So it was really only Sue that was home with the kids. So that was the plan in Zachary's mind Uh, but that does mean that anyone who opened the storm door would have the key to enter the house right because if you opened up that first door the keys on the inside of the first door correct okay so Gregory had gone to school that day he attended southern middle school every day he rode the bus to and from school and that day Gregory had an amazing time it had been the Friday of spirit week which is always the day of homecoming. And that's for the high school of the town. They had their homecoming football game. So if you are not from the United States and you don't really know what like a homecoming day is, 
usually high schools, typically, I mean, I guess sometimes middle schools here, they have a spirit week leading up to the Friday football game that is the last home game of the typical football season. So it's like your homecoming and that's there's usually like a dance and yeah, that's it's pretty much the the gist of it. So it's usually just like an exciting time and that Friday they had a pep rally at school so that was kind of like the way they ended the school day so the kids were all excited and Greg actually had been wearing his soccer jersey to school that day in support of his team that had a game scheduled um, for that weekend. And usually the kids are not supposed to be wearing their soccer jerseys, but the the coach did later say in interviews that he always looked the other way while the kids were wearing their jerseys to school. So what Gregory was wearing was just athletic shorts and the jersey is predominantly white. It's white and then it has like red diamond marks on the like upper shoulder. So that's what Greg is wearing when he comes home that day from school. So we are unaware of the precise time that Greg Whitman returned home from the school day. The bus driver reported that it must have been minutes after 3 p.m. when Greg was dropped off at his bus stop. So it's really only a short walk home, probably taking a few minutes. At 3.09 p.m., Erin Jeffrey called the Whitman residence. She was good friends with Greg and called him each day when she returned home from school as well. So Erin was kind of like Greg's little girlfriend. Okay. The kind of girlfriend you have in eighth grade, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Erin reported that someone picked up the phone and then hung up. Now, she called the Whitman household every day. So she knew what it sounded like on each phone that the Whitmans had. They had a portable phone, but then they also had like one of those phones where you have to put the receiver back down. Like it's not portable. Like a wired phone. Yes. Okay. So she said that it wasn't the clicking hanging up of the cordless phone, but it was someone putting the phone back down on the receiver. So she felt like the first phone call that she made at 309 Someone picked up the downstairs phone and just hung it right back up. Okay. At 3.15, Erin is going to call back. This time, Zachary Whitman answered, and she believed that to be the cordless phone from upstairs because it's a different, like, answering sound. It was clear that Zachary had been napping from him um, the way he picked up the phone, and he had been sleeping in his parents' room. He told Erin that he didn't think Greg was home yet and to call back later. So he hung up the phone with Erin shortly after she called. Zach's thought process there was if his brother would have been home, he most likely would have come and woke him up, which he usually did if he was ever home from school in the past. So again, he just told Erin to call back in a few minutes. The phone call had woken up Zachary Whitman. And now that he was awake, he actually did hear a commotion downstairs. So he went downstairs to see what was happening. The bedroom that Zachary had been in was at the top of the stairs. He actually was napping in his parents' bedroom. So when he went down the stairs, he noticed that in the hallway, below the fr- where the front door was, 
was his brother's backpack and a tremendous amount of blood. He ran through the house looking for his brother, eventually finding him in the laundry room, just barely holding himself up with the help of the dryer. Zach, terrified, calls 911. And that was at 317. So that's just the timeline that's being established here. From what has happened with this case, experts have said, and the police also believes that the timeline of Gregory getting home was around 310. So Erin makes her first phone call at 309. She gets hung up on. At 310, Gregory gets home. And then Erin calls again at 315. Zach said he's not there, but hears a commotion, goes downstairs, and two minutes later, a phone call is placed to 911. So the attack that took place on Gregory most likely only took seven minutes. But when we hear what happened, it's going to astound you that that took place in seven minutes. So um, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to go through what the transcript kind of is of the beginning parts of the 911 call. The full 911 call has never been released. We only have parts of it. So I'm going to give you the transcript of it and then I'm going to play it for you. Um, just because sometimes it's a little hard to hear. Um, I know some people had said that about our last 911 call. So I'll go through the transcript and then I'll play it. That sounds good. So once prompted as to what his emergency was, Zach said, oh my God, oh my God, I just came downstairs and my brother, his throat is all cut up. I don't know. I guess he's dead. You've got to send someone. Dispatch says, listen to me. How old is your brother? Zach, in a panic, but not out of breath, says he was 13. Already speaking in past tense. Okay, so you came home and found him there. He was asked, and he said, I heard a noise. I was upstairs. I was sleeping. I'm sick. I heard a noise. I come downstairs and see my brother in the back room. He's just lying there. He's all bloody. The whole house is like... And then he's cut off by the operator who says, listen to me, is he breathing? No, Zach says. And he's asked again, is he breathing? And again, he says no. So dispatch then asked him to try and get his brother down on a flat surface, most likely so he could try to resuscitate him if possible and start CPR. So Zach does proceed to try and do so. And then he becomes a little bit more hysterical and says, oh, my God, I tried to move him and his head came off. What? Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. Dispatch said, stay on the phone with me. So I'm going to play that part of the 911 call now and this clip of the 911 call was originally aired on investigation discovery on a documentary called the whitmans that aired on december 1st 2020 and actually a lot of this information came from this documentary which is just phenomenal and if you get a chance you really should 
watch it. It's heart-wrenching, but it is definitely something that you would be interested to watch if you like this case. So I am going to play that part of the 911 call now. So if 911 calls is something you don't like, I would fast forward about one minute. Park County 911. Oh my God, oh my God. I just came downstairs. And my, my brother, he's, he's gone, it's all cut off. I don't know, I guess he's dead. He's got to send someone. Listen to me, how old's your brother? He, he was 13. Okay, so 13. you came home and found him there. I heard a noise. I was upstairs, I was sleeping, I'm sick. I heard a noise. I come downstairs. And I see a brother in the bathroom. He's just lying there. He's all bloody. The whole house is... Listen to me. Is he breathing? No. No. He's not breathing? No. Can you move him away a little so you can get him flat on his back? Oh, my God. I just moved him. It actually came off. All right. Stay on the phone with me a minute. So that is just a crazy... That's just portion of the 911 call. In the 911 call, they go on to uh, just talk to him about where he lives. And for a very long portion of the rest of the call, Zach is going to continue saying that he needs to call his mother. He needs to call his mother. But of course, they want him to stay on the line with them. They eventually ask him if he thinks anyone else is in the house. He says he doesn't know. And then... From where the laundry room is, there is, it's a small laundry room. So there's a washer and dryer. And on the one side of the washer is a door that leads to their backyard. But then there's a door that is kind of across from where the dryer is that leads to their garage. So Zach eventually says that he's going to go into the garage so he doesn't have to walk more throughout the house in case somebody is still inside. And he's going to open the garage door for first responders. And in fact, that's actually where the first responders find him. So when they get to the scene, it's about 325. So it's been eight minutes since Zach's initial call to 911. He's still on the phone as the ambulance and police cars drive up the long driveway. And he is... And this is like a heart-wrenching part that I just feel like if I played it would just, I don't, I don't know, I feel like it's exploitative a little bit. But he is screaming on the top of his lungs, somebody help me, somebody help me, why, why, why? And it's kind of like that voice cracking 15-year-old sounds terrified. I mean, yeah, I, it, I mean... How how could you not be when you are seeing? First of all, you got blood everywhere, right? And they tell you, "Oh, put you know, put his body down, and his head comes off." That's uh, pretty crazy. I mean, that's it's not every day that that would happen, and it's a fifteen year old kid, you know. Yeah. Um, that's and this just is really his thirteen year old brother. Yeah. So the size difference between Gregory and Zach is not like a tremendous amount, and I just do want to clarify that. He was not completely decapitated. There were there was only skin and um, a few pieces of tissue holding Gregory's head on to the rest of his body. But for the most part, his head was severed. I mean, that's that takes a lot of uh, force and a lot of like something had to be used for that to well, happen. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, I guess I could just say right, right off the bat with that phone call. 
I don't know. I just feel like the past tense is a little weird. Yeah. Listen, we've done this a million times. It could be nothing, but that is a little weird to say it in past tense. I do find the past tense to be weird. And the fact that he's saying he's dead when he's still kind of like, I guess the way that he was found was that he was holding himself up on the dryer and then he was slowly sliding down. I think when Zachary found him in the laundry room that he had passed away, but he was still slumped up on the dryer. And the only thing now, if we're going in this direction and you'll know what I mean later, the reason why he might have said it in the past tense so quickly was because of the amount of blood that Zach saw when he came down the stairs because in the front entryway and you know, we'll post pictures on our Instagram, but the amount of blood is scary. It's like, you think I can't believe that much blood came out of a human being. Like it is a tremendous amount of blood in the main entryway. And then throughout the house. Also, listen, we we're not there think you know, hopefully no one ever has to like live that moment we don't know if you were to see that you probably think someone's dead too right off the bat i mean yeah. you know and then when like because you know if you tr- you know follow the blood trail or whatever you see it you see the pools of blood right if you're looking at if someone slumped over something and they're not moving they're not breathing yeah. i guess as a 15 year old you would think okay my brother's dead. Right. But then so. it is still weird to say he was 13. Like, I think you would say, like... He's 13. He's 13. Yeah. Like, how no, would I know. he's 13? Yeah. I don't want to get caught up on it. No. I guess because, like, it's just one little thing out of an entire, uh, you know, phone call. But that is a little odd. It's odd. One thing I also do want to point out, if we're following this timeline of Greg coming home at 310 and... Zachary calling 911 at 317 if Zachary was responsible for this then wouldn't he be tremendously out of breath on the phone call or wouldn't he have at least been out of breath and I I don't want to say like excited but like more intense on the phone with Aaron like he wouldn't just casually be like Oh, yeah, he'll be here in a few minutes. Call him back. Like, it's very hard to snap out of that. Well, I, I mean, is it? I I don't know, right? I mean, there's so many different... There's right. so many different personalities of people, whether it's you're true. 15 or 55. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't matter. Like, if you have the capability of doing that to your brother, why wouldn't you be able to s- snap back? I mean, you know? think about think about it. In, in a very casual context, right? If you're having an argument with somebody on the street, but it's brief, like it's like a walking past, like someone says something and you yeah. say something back to them, right? It's it's like you flip on a switch where you're like, you know, you know, screw you, whatever, right? And then in the next moment, you don't know that person, you don't care. And then it's like, oh, I'm getting a phone call. Hello? Oh, hey, mom. Like, it's like a... I understand you know what, what you're I'm, saying. I mean, I'm giving a really weird thing here, but I'm just trying to say, like, it's easy for someone to flip on a switch to to react a certain way and then flip it like and turn it off and be like acting casual as if, you know, you're right. You know what I mean? I think I can understand like being able to calm down 
but you'd still be really out of breath. True. I mean, it, you should be. I mean, if you're the one that just did what, you know, took place in the house. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, we'll debate that as we get further on with more information and more details. But that is the first kind of point of contention in the case is the 911 call and the call that is placed by Aaron Jeffrey. Also, just want to put it out there. I'm sorry, my analogies aren't too great, but I hope no, you understand them. John, they're great. Oh, Don't hey. doubt your analogies. Okay. <laughs> so Greg had stab wounds all over his body. An autopsy would later reveal that he had 64 wounds all over his hands, most likely defensive, four wounds on his face, 21 wounds on the back of his head and the back of his neck and chest. But most obviously, there was the vicious tearing that was done to his neck. It was not a clean cut. It was a brutal tearing of his neck. The first responder said that he could see the boy's entire throat that his head was only connected to the rest of his body by a very small amount of sinew. He had just about been decapitated. The first responder did say that when he put the back of his gloved hand to the boy's head, that he did feel that Gregory was still warm. So it does just kind of follow through with the fact that he was at 310. Like, this happened really quickly. It's interesting. I would want to know, which I'm sure we're going to get there, um, possible weapon of, uh, you know, that that made this possible. Uh-huh. Because that would, you know, bust it wide open, pretty much. Yeah. Um, a horrible detail that was listed on the police report was that um, the first responders noted that Greg was wearing a red soccer jersey, which is crazy because... The shirt was mostly white. That's why I mentioned it in the beginning. Greg had bled so much from his neck and from his back wounds that police thought that the shirt was supposed to be completely red. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, in the manner of which this kid's been murdered, I mean, it's... It makes sense. It's vicious. It's a, it's like a, really, it's a frenzy kill. I mean, yes. how many times was he stabbed? 62 times? Is 64. 64 times? All over his body? Yeah. Or just like his back and his neck? Well, the reason why he was, it was only the back of his neck and the back of his head was because when he was first attacked, when he walked in the house, uh, he was wearing his backpack. Okay. So that had protected him a little bit, but also his chest, his neck, his face, and his hands. Jeez. Okay. The chief of police and the detective that he assigned to the case arrived at the scene just five minutes after first responders. So that would make it 3.30 p.m. So it is kind of crazy that all of this happened within the span of 20 minutes. I have to say, the response time of the first responders is actually incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of why. It's like, you know, kid comes home, whatever happens happens inside that house, first responders are there. And the police officers are there as well. Like, it's it's yes. awesome, actually, as far as, you know, the response time. Right. Within eight minutes, the first responders were there. And then about five minutes after that, the chief of police shows up. So it is pretty intense. But then again, you know, New Freedom is a small town. And the police force we're talking about is uh, Southern York Police Department. 
and they really have never had anything like this take place. So it was a really big deal, which is why I'm assuming the big gun showed up at the scene. So the chief allowed his officers and first responders time to compose themselves after seeing the horrific scene that was in the home. He then instructed his officers to conduct a canvas of the neighborhood while the firefighters were told to establish a perimeter and create a log of who had been at the crime scene. Now, that's one little aside, too. I mean, although a lot they did respond very quickly, a lot of people responded very quickly. So there were a lot of people within the crime scene, um, first responders, police officers, and many volunteer firefighters. So that does kind of hurt the integrity of the crime scene. So the chief of police then speaks to Zach, who was still hysterical. At this point, he is standing in front of his house, still in his socks. He was still screaming and repeating over and over again that he needed to call his mother. So the chief made a note that the 15-year-old boy was covered in blood. He sent Zach to the hospital to get checked out and to remove him from the crime scene and calm down after getting his version of what happened. Now, um, it is interesting that when he was talking to the chief of police, Zach's story does change slightly. He tells the chief of police that he did hear his brother come in, the front door shut again, a little bit of a commotion, then got the phone call. I mean, we could chalk this up to shock or, I mean, we don't really know, but that's what he told the chief of police. The story changed slightly. So that is going to be, unfortunately, Zach's first strike against him. So just in case the perpetrator was possibly still in the house, the chief performed a security check to ensure that no one was hiding. And he found that no one was in the home but he was confronted by the brutal and bloody scene that really took place throughout the entire house. Like this wasn't like the attack happened in one area. So it's kind of blocked off by police tape. The whole house was a crime scene and so many people have walked through it at this point. Um, There was blood, some drops in the kitchen, in the hallway, in the front entry room, in the dining room, in the laundry room, on places on the wall and on the doors. And, you know, the integrity really had been knocked down a lot. It is crazy, though, that by doing the scope of the house, and you do find that there's evidence of blood in multiple rooms, kind of makes you think, though, right now, how did the brother not know, you know, or wake up and not know what was going on if it went, if it, went through multiple rooms of the home yeah so that's that's something that i'm thinking about right now on top of the uh weird number one call and his past tense usage so yes. technically yeah to me this is like strike two off the bat not saying that yeah i could be totally wrong but now it's not just the commotion of the attack that he didn't wake up from remember the brother is saying that he was not the one who answered the first phone call from aaron jeffries at 309 So not only did he not hear the commotion, he wasn't woken up by the first phone call, but he was woken up by the second. Okay. Unless if you are in the boat of supporting Zach Whitman, was he in a deep sleep? The first call kind of roused him. 
Then the commotion roused him a little bit. And then that second phone call woke him up. Yeah. I I don't know if he's taking medication. You know, like, did he take, like, cold medication? Uh, We don't know that. We don't know. Also, I mean, some people are just heavy sleepers. I, like I said, though, that's all good and all, and all. I guess the phone call, you can kind of chalk it up, like you just said, where, like, the first one might have, like, kind of got right. him, you know. But I do think it's weird that you, I don't know. It's interesting. Especially in and a small house. In a smaller house. I just want to Well, add. it's actually a pretty big house. Oh, it is? Yeah. Okay. I take that back. I redact. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, you know, I'm just saying, I mean, even, you know what, even if a house is big, you still are going to hear noises. Oh, no, you would... Uh, a scuffle like this that took place throughout the whole house, you totally, totally are going to hear. Yeah. Okay, actually, um, Kay's actually showing me a picture of the house. Okay, so it's pretty big. So it's kind of, it actually looks like my house in Goshen. It does look like. Yes, yeah. it does. Well, anyway, it's a big house. So, But you know what, though? If it has tall ceilings, things echo. Just want to throw that out there. Okay. Thank you. First-hand experience. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, seriously, though, you know, it, it does echo. Yes. I mean, even when you have furniture and rugs or whatever, I mean, you know, sound travels. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I think that's the biggest, like, strike so far is that nothing was heard through multiple rooms of the house. Yeah, I can agree with that. And that's I... confirmed through investigators. And the first phone call. that That there's evidence throughout the house. Yeah. So about 40 minutes away in Baltimore, Maryland, where Sue worked, she knew that something had to be wrong. Usually her boys would call her at around 3.20 p.m. once they had both returned from school. And at this point, only she knew that only Greg was at school that day. So it was 3.40 and she hadn't heard from either of her sons. It was minutes later that she received a call from the police department that one of her sons had been murdered and the other was at the hospital. The police needed to see her immediately. So she rushed out of work and headed north back to New Freedom, Pennsylvania. That's so it's could you imagine getting that phone call at work? No, I can't. At that point, it hadn't even been confirmed to her which of her sons had passed away. Oh, my God. And, um, and OK, so imagine her right hearing that phone call, getting that phone call. And then now you have the husband who's on a business trip. Yep. You want to get on the first plane or whatever, drive as fast as you can. Well, what's interesting about that was 700 miles away, Ron Whitman had boarded a plane at the same time Gregory had been attacked. Ron Whitman boarded his plane at 315. So he, in later interviews, is going to say that he is devastated that while he was boarding a plane, he knew his son was being stabbed to death. You know, it's it. you don't always get the details like that when your child is murdered of exactly when it took place. So then you now know exactly what you were doing when your son was killed. Yeah. I mean... That's I, just so, yeah. so sad. It's also like kind of... It's also just... No ma- I guess no matter what, it's it's a hard thing to hear, uh, to hear and to feel like you couldn't be there to like stop it protect you know your child you know especially when you're 700 miles away so right that's rough and because he was on a plane he was not able to be reached so once the police had found out about ron's air travel from his wife they contacted the airport 
A security guard was waiting to meet Ron once he landed in Pennsylvania. When he informed him that one of his sons had been murdered, the man crumbled to the ground. Still in shock, minutes later, he drove as fast as he could to meet his wife at the hospital. Um, Ron Whitman, because of obviously his plane travel time and then him having to go from the airport to the hospital, he wouldn't arrive at the hospital until 8 p.m. that night. Okay, wow. So Sue Whitman first arrived at her house. She was unable to drive up her driveway because the first responders and police vehicles were parked there. The chief of police met her at the bottom of her driveway. He consoled her and let her know that he was sorry for the loss of her son. He then explained that he could not let her enter the house because they were processing it as a crime scene. They were trying to look for clues and evidence that will help them catch the person who did this to her son. They were calling in police from the state police's crime scene unit to process the scene. Devastated, she just kept asking him if she could be allowed to see her baby. That's so sad. That is sad. And he told her that they needed to maintain the integrity of the scene. And I can imagine that he did want to maintain the integrity of the scene. But I think that at the same time, he was probably trying to protect Sue from having to see her son like that. I mean, I guess so. Right. Because, I mean, at this point, you can make the argument that the entire scene is tampered with, you know, just because everyone's walking in and out. Correct. You know, it's just it's it's a mess. But, yeah, I think you're right. I think that that's probably the reason. You know, it's it was brutal. I mean, it's probably I think I feel like I always say this because I feel like it can't get any worse. But this is like one of the worst murders on a a child, no less, that we've probably covered. It's that severe. So imagine that. I mean, he doesn't want that. You know, her to see that. Right. And Sue then is going to tell the chief of police that he better do his job and find out who did this. So through the analysis of crime scene investigators, police were able to determine that the following is most likely what happened to Greg once he entered his home. Once he stepped through the threshold of the house, unfortunately, we do not know if the door was opened or not. If we knew that detail, we would know if somebody besides Zach Whitman was in the house that day. So that's a mystery to us. But once Greg walked into the threshold of the house, he was grabbed from behind, meaning that someone was waiting for him to come home. His throat was immediately attacked with some sort of small knife. It had to take a tremendous amount of effort to slash his throat the way it had been. It was more of a tearing. It wasn't like I'm saying slash his throat but or cut it, but it was a, a tearing that was evident on his skin and through his tissue and spinal cord. So I guess you could say that the blade was possibly serrated. If it had, a, uh, if it has a some no, sort of, it no? didn't. It was. We'll get into it because they do find the the murder weapon. Oh, then the perpetrator must have begun to stab Greg in the back of his head and neck with the same weapon, and that's how they knew it was a small blade because of the small stab wounds that were on the back of his head and neck. But because, like I said before, he had his backpack on, the stab wounds were only at the back of his neck and the back of his head. 
at some point, the boy broke free of his attacker by releasing his backpack. And when he did this, he tried to run back to the front door. At the front door, you see Greg's right bloody handprint must have been pressed against the wall while his left bloody hands tried to open the door, but he couldn't get it open. And his attacker was right behind him. So then the boy ran to his right into the formal dining room. He tried to elude his attacker by running around the table, but was unable to do so because he was chased. He then went over the dog gate that was set up in the house that led to the back entryway hallway. From there, he tried to open the door that would lead out to the garage. As Greg tried to open the door, the attacker was holding it shut above him. They knew this took place because there was blood smears on the doorknob of someone trying to open it and one gloved hand print a few feet above the door handle. So Greg then ran to the right into the laundry room area. He must have thought that maybe he could run out that door into the backyard. But again, he was stopped and attacked. The perpetrator then left him clinging to life on the edge of the dryer. Um, That is when they're assuming that he did get his hand, face wounds, and further wounds to his neck. Now, the perpetrator might have left through the laundry room because that door had been left ajar and there was some blood on the door handle. So they really paint you a a picture there, and that was actually good there. Okay, I like how you put that out in front of us. I think what's sticking out to me, two things. One, that's a lot of commotion. Yeah. Because that's going to be yelling. Well, when he was attacked in the entryway, his throat was slashed, so his windpipe might have been um, severed or cut in the entryway, so I think that Greg was not able to yell out for help. Okay. Still a lot of commotion though. Yes. A lot of lots of commotion. It's foot traffic, right? I mean you're you know, you're running around the dining room table, not to make a joke of it or anything, but you're running around the you know, it's like a cat and mouse game. A lot of, you know, running around. So that's noise. The other thing that I was thinking of too was if someone's holding the door and the print is up and the the print is above him yeah that would make me think that the person is stronger than him yes and also maybe taller than him right right because if you if it was somebody with you know around the same age i don't know i'm just like i mean like you said how much taller they weren't much uh, you know the height difference wasn't much between the two brothers it's about a foot and a half all right you know but no just telling you yeah it is possible from where i mean if you think about where a doorknob is on a door only a few feet above doesn't necessarily mean the person was tall it wasn't that high on the door okay so what okay all right it's just weird to me. It definitely sticks out to me. Yeah, it's it's terrifying how detailed this scene is 
to let you know what happened. I think that's the scariest part is that, you know, sometimes you see, see crime scenes and, you know, crime scene techs will kind of lay out or blood spatter experts will lay out what took place. And you're kind of like, how do they really know? But here it is laid out for you and it's scary. Yeah. Like I'm holding on to these little things that you, that you're, you know, that I'm trying to pick apart, but like, it's a little scary actually Yeah, that this could happen in, in someone's home and then you're not even sure like who did it. I mean, but you have the entire layout of like probably most likely how it went down. Right. I don't know. Well, while the crime scene technicians from the county and state processed the scene, they asked the Southern Regional York police chief who would be handling the case. He adamantly stated that his small department would handle the entire investigation. He said that he had a 20-year veteran detective that he trusted, and he would have the resources. The technicians had really only been asking because they needed to know for evidence protocol, but they did make a mental note, and the same as I am now, that this is an interesting choice that the chief made. Although the detective may have 20 years of experience and he might have been a phenomenal police officer, homicides like this don't just happen in southern York County, Pennsylvania, and a small force could have benefited from the resources of the greater county and or state police and what they had to offer. So I think the fact that right off the bat they're going to say we don't want help and then later we find out the detail that they close their investigation after 12 hours. That's a massive red flag. I agree with you. I also, uh, because between this case and the last case we did, I don't want it to seem like we, like I have no faith in small town police departments. But what you just said really is eye-opening. If you investigated an, uh, uh, a crime scene for 12 hours and you're like, yeah, that's all we're going to do here. Case closed. Well, you know? we know what ha- they assume that they know what happened immediately without doing further investigations. That's an issue. Now, listen, I think that small town police departments play a tremendous role in the investigations of homicides or missing persons cases because they have their ear to the street. Like they are the ones who understand the way the small town works. They're the ones who know what repeat offenders they have to deal with all the time. And that's so helpful to the larger investigation. But when it comes to experience and dealing with homicides, that does help so much. So I think the resources alone that can be used from a larger county sheriff's department and your state police would help you in the solving of this crime. Because your small police department doesn't have those resources. They also don't have detectives that have, you know, solved 20 murders. I I guess it's as simple as this. If it's offered to you, you take it. Right. Right? Always I take I think we help. can come to that consensus. If it's offered, you take it. Yeah. That is it. <laughs> and, you know, more often than not, I find that that does take place. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think that would be what's normal. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you know, if I, you know, if I'm wrong, let me know if anybody's a cop out there. So, what I think that it's more of like an old school mentality of like this is our territory, we're going to handle this, but as the years have gone on, people have been more accepting about um, you know, 
interdepartment relationships and communication because we've really learned that one of the biggest things that could help in solving crimes is different police departments talking to each other. Yeah, and relaying information back and forth. So one example of this police department kind of like hitting a snag because they're not used to these kind of investigations is the luminol testing. So according to the documentary, The Whitmans on Investigation Discovery, the investigators working the case wanted to use luminol to determine if blood had been cleaned up at the scene or if there were any footprints that led out of the house where the killer left. Because that would be able to show them, you know, maybe where a murder weapon was dropped or how they left the scene. Okay. So, uh, because you got to think about it. If the 911 call came only two minutes after the phone call from Aaron Jeffrey, if it was an outside perpetrator, Zach would have only missed him by seconds. So how did he leave if it was someone else? Good point. So they had never worked with luminol before, so they had to read the directions on how to mix the ingredients. Oh, man. (laughs) It's not. It's never a good sign. So eventually they figured it all out and did take a few times. Um, Now, I learned two very interesting things when it comes to luminol while researching this case. First, the glow that is created when luminol is sprayed on surfaces where blood was once present It only glows for about 30 seconds. So that's why investigators need to take pictures when luminol is sprayed so it can be further analyzed. You know, it takes longer than 30 seconds to determine if something's a match. Okay. I I never knew that about luminol. Fun fact. Fun fact. So this is what the investigators tried to do at the Gregory Whitman crime scene. But unfortunately... They didn't have the correct shutter speed on, so they weren't able to capture any of the images of luminol. Seriously? Yeah. See, that's a big problem. And this (laughs) is why experience in these cases is helpful. It matters. It totally matters. So in interviews, the chief of police has stated that the footprints were seen by the house the hot tub and walking to a patch of trees that outlined the hot tub. He said that these footprints were light and made by socks. He doesn't need the pictures because him and his officers and detectives saw it themselves. They're arrogant and they're in denial. Yeah. Like, how can you say that? If you want to find out what happened at a specific location, you want to have those pictures to look back on and it's important to the case, then you're going to need pictures. Like you're going to need to take pictures to look back as a reference, right? Because what's going to happen when one day down the road, you know, or this case is never solved, it goes to become a cold case. All those people that were there to witness this, those witness that if they're all, let's say they've passed on. Now it's just witness, you know, it's like testimony, like, oh, you know, I don't know. I just don't think it holds the same amount of weight as pictures. No, I completely agree with you. And another thing that is going to be odd is that they say they know for certain that what they saw were sock prints. Well, who's running through, you know? Well, what I'm saying is, how can you know for certain they're sock prints if you really only saw it for 30 seconds? And you didn't do a 
a super in-depth analysis of what you were seeing because you thought pictures were being taken. So you can't say now in reflection, oh, we knew they were sock prints. We knew where they were light, where they were strong. Like you can't, the human memory is not that good. So I don't think that that's reliable evidence. I just, I, I don't know. Also, if they now make a claim based on evidence that they saw for 30 seconds, if that piece of evidence turns out to convict somebody or to get someone in trouble now, how are they, like, how does, first of all, how does that even stick? And if it is used against someone, right, or to narrow down the search, it actually hurts you. No, I right? completely agree with you. I don't know. That's just, you know, weird to me. And the second thing that I learned about luminol is that it's not just blood that can create these illuminations. It's also the presence of strong chemicals. Well, I guess we knew that like bleach would do it because people do. You could tell if someone's tried to clean up a crime scene. So cleaning chemicals would also cause these illuminations, uh, diff- kind of like slightly different illumination, but still the same. And one thing that would cause these illuminations are chemicals from your hot tub. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, like, follow me down on this journey. Let me lay out the house for you. So you are going to have, um, if you're looking at the backyard, a hot tub in their backyard on kind of like a cement little patio. And the door from the laundry room is kind of in front of where the hot tub is. And then off to the side are like double doors that lead outside as well. Surrounding the back side of the hot tub is like a like garden patches. Like, you know how you have landscaping around the back of like a hot tub? That's what they had. And there were some trees there and some shrubbery. Now, the footprints are strongest by the hot tub and they get lighter as they lead back to the house in the laundry room and in the double doors. That would make me feel like this illumination is coming from the hot tub versus blood because then if the illuminations were stronger by the house and then got lighter as they went on, then I would think, oh, okay, that was blood and then it was trailing off as they were walking. Right, Now, there was also a trail of light prints that led to um, a patch of dirt that was, you know, like the landscaping that was on the backside of the hot tub. There, they're going to find a slightly disturbed area. And in a shallow little grave, they uncover a pair of bloody athletic gloves, which they think belong to Zach Whitman. And a pen knife, which is a very small folding knife that is consistent with the injuries that Greg suffered. What, what, what I think is interesting about this is like what you said, John, like what if these whole like luminal prints that they weren't able to get pictures of lead to the most important pieces of evidence? And look, they have. What they think is the murder weapon later gets determined to be the murder weapon and bloody gloves. Right. But you see, if you had pictures, you could determine 
if those prints were caused or whatever, whether it was blood or if it's from the hot tub, right? Right. It's like now you have no idea because an expert could maybe look at the luminol pictures and be like, no, that's a chemical reaction from the luminol and whatever was used in the in the hot tub right. or whatever like the chlorine case. chlorine or whatever Something, yeah. Like you could make that judgment call from an expert, right? Now you have no pictures. You can't do that. Right. Right? So that's that. Or you could just as easily say, look, these are bloody footprints that lead from the house to that area. And then they come back inside, which would then be your evidence against Zach Whitman. I mean, like, it just as easily works both ways to prove and disprove your case. But now you have none of that because we don't have the pictures of the luminol prints. Well, yeah. I, I At this point, with this whole uh, luminol and all that stuff... I think he already wants to paint the picture of who he thinks it is. Yeah. Like who's responsible for it. Yes. To to say socks, it's almost like saying the person that did this lives in the house. Yeah. That's what I get from that. Yeah. But what is confirmation in his mind would be where the weapons were found and the gloves like the weapon that was found, the gloves in that little shallow grave. What person would go out of their way to go bury the weapon used to do to to murder the kid and put it in the backyard right outside? Yeah, like to me, that does seem like a very like fifteen year old boy thing to do. Correct, but I just want to add this. I'm trying to paint like. What if I was the police chief? Well, yeah, of course that's what you're thinking. That's what you're if, thinking. Yeah. If you're a perpetrator who's coming into this house for whatever reason and you do this frenzied attack on this 13-year-old boy and you're fleeing the scene, why are you going to bury the murder weapon and the gloves you used, which you got from the house because they're the athletic gloves that are similar to the ones worn by Zachary Whitman uh, when he plays lacrosse? Why wouldn't you just take that with you? It makes no sense. And you're right. It is a 15-year-old boy's mindset. If I bury it here, no one's going to find it. I mean, like, that's kind of, you know. Now, the police chief is going to say it doesn't matter that we don't have the luminol pictures because the what he likes having more than the luminol pictures of the footprints is the murder weapon buried in the backyard. There he has a point. Yeah. Right? Because now you actually have the weapon that caused this right. kid's death. Yeah. I get that. Now, there's several things that come up in addition to this. Like, every time one thing is found, it brings up four more questions in this case, it seems like. So, if Zachary did go bury this in the backyard, he would have had to enter the house back again. However, there's no blood found in they they thought through the prints that they saw for 30 seconds that the footprints led back in through the double doors, but there was no blood on any other, like, re-entryways into the house. Right. So what they're trying to claim is that within seven minutes, Zach was able to do this with, and this knife, guys, is only inches long. So the amount of effort and time that it would take to stab Gregory 64 times, slash, cut his, to cut someone's head off with a blade that's inches long and not sharp, 
is a like I can't even think about the violence that needed to be used to do that. Then he's going to casually answer the phone for Aaron Jeffrey and then hang up and then he's going to be able to go outside, bury that and then call the police in 7 minutes. It's a little yeah. strange too. I mean, it's it's like this massive mystery. It, yeah, it is. I think the... And and don't and don't forget, Zachary Whitman's only 2 years older than his brother, so I don't want to say their forces were equal, but they weren't as all like I feel like it seemed like somebody a lot more powerful would have to do this. I don't know. It's very yeah, I mean, confusing. I thought I thought that too. I mean, if I'm trying to uh, like kind of put my put my mindset on either side, whether I think he did it or didn't do it, right? The thing that sticks out to me is like, listen, people have some people are just way more aggressive than others. Also, when you have adrenaline pumping, like anything's That's possible. True. You know what I mean? I mean, there's you know, I'm I'm sure our audience has heard things like this before. I mean, there's there's times where. Uh, um, a mother uh, has flipped over a car to save her child, and it was all based on adrenaline and her want to save her kid. Like anything is possible if you have that adrenaline pumping through you, right? And and also if you're extremely like if you're a violent person or if you're just aggressive or something, or you just snapped. I mean, I mean, there's so no, many I, little factors that can you know that bring you to that level. Correct. I totally understand that, but now this could go to both parts as well if Zachary was planning this attack which I mean it would kind of have to be premeditated if he was waiting at the door for his brother um, and he was the one who hung up the phone on Aaron Jeffrey the first time why wouldn't he have just gotten a a knife from the kitchen because or is that a 15-year-old's way of thinking, I'm going to just use this? I Very weird. Because if he used a... Tr- true. But think about it. If he used a, a knife in the kitchen, he's probably thinking they're going to know that I did it. Because it's missing. Because it's a missing but knife. But is a 15-year-old going to think that well thought out if he's going to just bury the knife in the backyard? And if they're... The premeditation is weird and the intent is weird because the two boys loved each other. There was no animosity between the two of them. Uh, yeah, I mean... Unless he's just... Are we claiming he's a psychopath? It's possible, isn't I know, it? It's, no, it's like these are the questions like, that isn't come it like, up. I know what you're saying. Like, How could he be smart enough to do, to not use a knife in a house, but then dumb to bury it behind the right. house? Like, like, I like get for it. example, if he was smart enough to say, I don't want to use a knife from the house because they'll know it's me, then why wasn't he smart enough to just, after the first time Aaron Jeffrey called... Leave the phone off the hook. I know. I I don't know. It, it's it's very difficult. But at the same time, you know, you're not gonna listen. There's no way to plan a perfect murder. That's, you're gonna get no. you're gonna get screwed. So it's kind of like you know you're not gonna hit on everything correctly, especially if you're 15 years old. You know what I mean? I don't know. I just no. I I I, I know. All right, guys, we're going to take yeah. a break here. <laughs> Good. <laughs> to talk. I know. I got to let like our minds are going too much right now. Okay, so let's take a a breath from cuz you can go crazy with this case thinking about everything. No, I, I listen, there's so much information and so many what ifs. You're on overload? Overload, not to mention John's head is actually smoking right now, guys. It's smoking between <laughs> that and the fact that Dunkin' Donuts got my delivery wrong. I'm uh, not my delivery, my order wrong no, this, this morning. No, this is more important. Totally. But I'm just saying, between better. the two, I'm like 
I don't know where to turn. Oh my god, you're having a rough morning. I'm having a panic attack. <laughs> um, so let's take a break from the like what ifs and like get back into the story. Is that okay for you? I'm I'm down. Yeah. Okay. This case was actually a little too much. I was like, ooh, John will love it. You're like going in circles. You know what it is? It's just like it's my it's I love the like unsolved part so much that it like rattles me. I, I love it. It's like I wanna figure it out. What's going to happen is later tonight, John is going to mention like 20 things to me that he didn't say on the podcast that he's mad about. You know what it is? I just never, every time we do the show, I just, sometimes there's things I want to say and I, and I forget to do it. We should have like an after show with John. Maybe we should. <laughs> Would that be good? I don't yeah. know. All right. Maybe, hey. maybe, let's, let's think about it. Okay. All right. So back at the hospital that night, just after the gloves and pen knife had been found, the police are going to want to question Zach some more about the events of that day. The Whitmans were a little concerned for their surviving son, who had to tell his story several times since the traumatizing events. However, for the sake of solving their other son's murder, they agreed. As the questioning went on, the Whitmans got the feeling like the questioning was becoming accusatory as if the police thought their son, Zach, was the one who was responsible for their other son's murder. And their thought process was correct. The police did hone in on Zach as a suspect right away. They felt like his story was changing, and they also thought that it was strange that he said he had slept through the entire commotion that took place downstairs. They also felt like he had an excessive amount of blood on his persons um, for just finding the body. Then finally, their smoking gun would be the murder weapon and athletic gloves that were found in the backyard. In later interviews with each of the Whitman parents, they stated that Zach was asked separately by them if he had killed Greg. They said that he looked them in the eye and told them, that he would not have ever been able to do that to Greg, that he loved him. And his parents knew that to be true. Zach did love his brother. They loved the same things. They were always playing games and sports together. They had play fights, and they were each other's best friends. Just months prior, they had gone on vacation, and Greg had gone off and didn't return for hours. It was Zach that went to look for him found him, brought him back. From Ron and Sue's perspective, Zach could not have done the brutal things that had been done to their youngest son. He just didn't kill his brother. And Zach, looking them in the eye and saying, I didn't do it, Ron and Sue said that was enough for them. And from that point on, their crusade was to save their one surviving son. Now here is where things are going to get very tricky from a legal standpoint. The victim and the suspect not only live in the same house, but are both minors. So this means that the decisions made about the property belonging to the suspects are made by his parents. However, those parents are also the decision makers regarding the evidence and property searches because they are the owners of what is now the crime scene. Tricky. Technically, the penknife and gloves had been found without a warrant. In any other case, that would have been totally fine. But now they're being taken from the property of the suspect's guardians. 
who were under what could legally be defined as undue stress, rendering them incapable of making logical decisions. So this is a matter that will come up later and is just one example of how complicated the case has become. Usually, a crime scene is going to happen at the victim's home. So when the police went to Sue and Sue said to the police chief, do whatever you need to do to find out who killed my son, he took that as I'm allowed to search this entire property. When the police were in the hospital with Ron Whitman and Ron Whitman said, do whatever you need to do, they also took that as we can search his property. But now whatever they need to do has turned into we're finding evidence to put your other son in jail. Right. So it's when it's not convenient for them or if they're trying to protect their other kid. Like it it would be a damn shame if one kid, you have two children, one child is now dead and the other one's possibly the one who killed them. Now you're going to and if and if he gets convicted, now you're now you're pretty much you, you lost two kids. And right. then that other child is not going to have a life anymore if he didn't do it. Think about it. If he didn't do it, now he's in jail for God knows how long, and now your other child's dead. So it's like right. a really tricky situation, even from a family standpoint. Correct. In just as much as it is like a legal standpoint. Right. And I think that eventually the Southern York Regional Police Department would have been able to get a search warrant to search the property if the Whitmans had said no. But then at least they would have that, that they legally obtained the evidence versus the parents of the suspect saying, do what you need to do. Like, that's a little ambiguous. So that does come out a little bit later on in the case. But we will most definitely get there. But it's just one of the examples of how, like, complicated everything is. So the Whitman residence was only held as a crime scene for 12 hours. This is something that the family was nervous about. I just think that it's crazy that they didn't even look into the possibility that it could have been someone else. That's because they've already made their conclusion. You know what I mean? I know, but that's investigating 101. Don't get tunnel vision on one suspect. They didn't even look into the possibility that it could have been someone else. I agree with you. No, I do agree with you. Um, I just think that that's where their that's where their heads at because they wouldn't they would be doing the opposite. You know what I mean? Like they would be going to investigate, but they're not right. So forty hours after the murder occurred, the family had to pick out a casket for Greg. Right after they were asked to bring Zach down to the police station, there they were shown all of the evidence that they had against Zach. He was in the home. He had the means. How did he not wake up? The athletic gloves, the pen knife were found behind the house. Then they played the good cop, bad cop scenario. One detective laid out the case calmly while the other came in afterwards and said, we know you did it, Zach. The Whitmans were flabbergasted with the accusation. Zach was telling his parents that he didn't do it. There was no reason for him to do it. The Whitmans did notice right away that there was something huge missing from the story told by the police. Motive. 
why would Zach want to kill his brother? And that's, I think, the biggest question overall. I mean, there's a little lot of little things that we could go into debate about for hours. But the biggest overall thing is why? And I, I don't think there's an answer for that. I don't think we'll ever know. Yeah. I mean, unless someone comes forward that knew maybe knew something beforehand that maybe took place days prior. I mean, yeah. who knows, you know? And that's even if the brother did it. Right. That's what's crazy. Yeah. Gregory Whitman's murder was big news in the state of Pennsylvania. Hundreds of people showed up at his memorial service. By then, news had gotten out that Zach was a suspect. For him, the service was not spent mourning the loss of his younger brother, but it was spent dodging glances and the scrutiny of a community that now believed he was guilty. Reasons as to why Zach killed his brother started as rumors. He did drugs, and Greg was killed during one of his drug-fueled rampages. The rumors slowly turned into unsubstantiated newspaper articles. The police had actually tested Zach for drugs. These samples had been collected at the hospital on October 2nd, and he was completely clean. He had no history of taking drugs. He actually was a straight-A student that played a sport for every season. And although the police knew that the articles were false, they did nothing to stop them from being printed. So now this 15-year-old is, it's, I mean, I don't know if he did it or not. I mean, we go both ways, but this is kind of has become this witch hunt now at this point. Virtually no investigation took place regarding the theory that someone else could have entered the Whitman home using the key that Zach had left in the door for his brother that day. Zach had always been the one who did it. The investigators and prosecution had been confident of this given the evidence they had. And because of this, the district attorney's office made the decision to charge Zach as an adult. And because he was being tried as an adult in the state of Pennsylvania, he could potentially face the death penalty. At 15? At 15 years old. Oh, well, right, because he's been charged as an adult. Correct. Okay. When the Whitman's defense attorneys tried to argue that Zach should not be tried as an adult, a judge overruled the challenge and the charges stuck. Throughout the years that the investigation is going to take place between Zach's charges being brought against him and the actual trial, Zach went through several psychiatric evaluations, um, both from the side of the prosecution and the side of the defense. No evaluation ever stated that he had rage issues inward or outward conflict with himself or his family or impulse control issues. He never showed any signs of aggression. Now the time between Zach's formal charging and his trial was four and a half years. This is something that many find interesting for two reasons. First, why does it take so long to build a case that is such a sure shot that a 15-year-old was being charged as an adult. Very little time was actually spent arguing evidence. Most of it was for the building of the case, of the prosecution. Those who support Zach, including his parents, believe that police should have spent more than 12 hours 
considering other leads if it was going to take another four years to gather evidence to convict their number one suspect. Right, exactly. And and this goes back to what I said in the last episode as well. It's it's the same trend a little bit. You, like, it all starts with the investigating. That is what is brought to a judge and quite possibly a, ju- a jury, right? Yeah. If you have 12 hours, that's all you had investigated. That's all your evidence. A judge is just going to look and go, okay, I'm going to try him as an adult. He definitely did it. Done. Like, well, like that's, you know, I mean, I'm cutting all the legal stuff out, but yeah. I'm just saying that is not, like, that's why it's flawed. It is flawed, but there is a second reason as to why the prosecution might be taking so much time. They didn't want their jury to be looking at a 15-year-old boy. They wanted the jury to look at a 20-year-old defendant because it seemed more likely that a 20-year-old, okay, was capable of doing this. I mean, Zach, he was very athletic, but he was a scrawny boy. So to look at the damage that was done to Gregory and be like, this kid did it would be hard for a jury to believe. It'd be easier to say, okay, this person did it. And now they they would have less sympathy for a 20-year-old in front of them versus a 15-year-old boy who's being tried as an adult. And if you asked anybody that didn't live in that town or know know, everything that we have been kind of laying out, you know, they would agree that, that this is completely wrong. That's a game that they're playing to wait for the kid to be old enough to look like he could be, uh, you know. He could be a killer. Exactly. That's that's ridiculous. Yeah. So, like, I'm, I'm, I can't say, like, things are so out of place, but that is insane that our legal system allows that. Like, I, I'm, you know, I'm not, like, this activist or anything, but I just don't like how that's a game being played. Yeah. If you have evidence, if you, you bring it to the forefront. Evidence, sorry, I cut you off. I was going to say, if you have evidence, you bring it to the forefront and, okay, this is my evidence. This concludes my investigation. Now let's have due pro- let the process that goes right. about, right? Not let's play games for f- almost five years so that way we can make the guy look like he's capable of a, uh, to be a killer. That's ridiculous. Right. I think that if you have the evidence that you collected within that short amount of time that made you feel like Zachary Whitman is the person who did it, then whether he's 15 years old or 20 years old, the evidence has to be speaking for itself. And if not, then you should be doing a stronger investigation to make the evidence speak and to make your evidence and your clues and and all of that, your investigation speak for who did it, not what this kid looks like. I just think that not to say that if the police did further investigation that they would have found another suspect, but they would have been able to build a stronger case one way or the other. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, yeah. Longer investigation should have been done. Yeah. So in the four and a half years, Zach was unable to leave his home. So depending on whatever you believe, the place where he committed his crime or the place where he witnessed the most traumatic event of his life, became his prison. So now let's get into the trial that took place in 2003. The jury would have to spend just under three hours to get to the courthouse in York County, and the same amount of time to get back. That's because they brought the jury in from uh, Montgomery County, which is uh, further east out in Pennsylvania. Because they felt like they wouldn't be as like tainted by news stories and, and rumors and things like that. 
But then there's also a downside to that because the jury must have been exhausted from like the three hour drive there. They had to sit through the details of the trial, which were devastating and horrific to hear. Then they'd have to drive another three hours back. I mean, that's an exhausted jury. The Whitmans claimed that they were not happy with their defense attorney for trial. The original man that they had gone with had gotten sick, so they needed to hire a different man. The Whitmans claim that their attorney made two major mistakes during trial with Zach's defense. First, they and their attorney were aware of all the various experts that the prosecution was going to call to support their version of events. But their attorney said that they would not need to call any expert witnesses to contradict what the prosecution was claiming. He said that he knew enough to be able to make their experts be proven wrong on cross-examination. But the Whitmans were like, well, if I was on a jury and the prosecution were the only ones bringing experts in, but the defense wasn't, I would be thinking, well, that's because they couldn't find an expert to testify as to what they want to prove. So the Whitmans were upset their defense attorney was not getting these experts. But now at that point in the, um, like the legal process, it would take so long to because if they hired another attorney they'd have to go through another like a few years of him being up to speed on the trial wow okay secondly and this is the defense lawyer um he felt like he did not need to obtain the phone records from the whitman household on october 2nd 1998 this they believed was a flaw because the time between the first and second call from Aaron. And then that 911 call, this is all vital information because what if that timeline was actually longer than they thought? So it really would have helped um, Zach's case if everything didn't happen within such a, a short amount of time or if it happened within an even shorter amount of time, it could also help Zach's case. So they felt like getting the phone records was really important. But the defense lawyer believed that Aaron's testimony during trial would be more useful than the phone records themselves. Aaron stated that Zach did not seem upset or out of breath during their conversation. If the prosecution's timeline of events is correct, Aaron would have called during Zach's attack on his brother. How are you not out of breath or upset if you are literally in the process of decapitating your 13-year-old brother, especially when you're only 15. Like, if we're saying this is a frenzied attack adrenaline rush, you can't act calm on the phone. If you're taking a two-inch, like, dull blade and using it to shred your 13-year-old brother's neck, you can't calmly answer a phone call. So that's why the defense lawyer is saying Aaron's testimony is going to be so helpful to us because she's saying, oh, he just sounded like he just woke up when he answered the phone. And then the Whitmans are saying, well, then let's get the phone records. Yeah. And and he's not doing it. So it's like it just seems like the experts would help. The phone records would help. So like you said, why not just do it? Just like the police asking for help from the state police. Just yeah. Just do it. (laughs) So during the trial, the prosecution was saying that Zach had premeditation and intent to murder his brother. He had stayed home 
and plan the attack. Those who are critical of Zach did not like the fact that he was really serious during the entire trial. Stone-faced was the words that they used to describe him. And as you can imagine, some parts of the trial got emotional as they were talking about, you know, how hurt his brother was and, and how savage of a murder this was. But also, Zach's 911 call is heartbreaking. Like, the part where he's in the garage and you hear the sirens coming and he's screaming, it's, like, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. So, one of the prosecution's strongest points made during trial was bloodstain and blood spatter analysis of Zach's clothing and the house. So when Zach was taken to the hospital, his sweatshirt was taken off within the ambulance and placed in an evidence bag. Once he was at the hospital, so were his socks. So one of the prosecution's strongest points made during trial was the blood stain and spatter analysis on Zach's clothes. When Zach was taken to the hospital, his sweatshirt was taken off in the ambulance and placed into an evidence bag. Once at the hospital, his socks were taken off and also placed in an evidence bag. The prosecution, through their experts, were explaining that there was evidence of arterial spray on the upper left-hand sleeve of Zach's sweatshirt. This happened when an artery is cut while the heart is still pumping So when the heart pumps blood to that artery that has a cut, blood is forcefully sprayed out of that artery and would cause something that is known as arterial spray. They claimed that this was evident in a V-shaped pattern on the sleeve of Zach's light blue sweatshirt and must have happened when Greg's throat was cut. They argue that at the top of Zach's socks were drip patterns on the top of them. So they're saying that the drip patterns could have only taken place if Zach was the one stabbing Greg, causing the drip to go down on his sock. Finally, they stated that the dirt on the bottom of Zach's socks was the result of going outside to bury the gloves and the murder weapon. Next, they called the detectives to the stand to testify about the luminol footprints and how they led to the trees under which the weapon and bloody athletic gloves were found. Then the murder weapon was shown to the jury, but not in its actual size because it's extremely small. The average person would truly not believe that that weapon could have been used to sever someone's head. Hmm. And the amount of force that had to have been used was crazy. So rather, the prosecution chose to take that picture of the murder weapon and blow it up on a poster and show it to the jury. Wow. Okay. So it was very deceptive. Now, there's arguments against everything that the prosecution is claiming. When it comes to the arterial spray, an expert has said that you have to look at the sweatshirt as a whole. First of all, from the amount of blood that's in the crime scene, if Gregory's shirt was so bloody that they thought the white jersey was actually red and there was such thing as arterial spray 
on Zach, he would have a tremendous amount of blood on his sweatshirt. Oh, yeah, 100%. It would look like like spray patterns all over, probably. And not even just spray patterns, but blood everywhere. Because while he was cutting, if he were to have surprised his brother, tore at his neck with this tiny blade, the amount of blood that would get on the sleeves of his sweatshirt is crazy. Yeah, it would be a lot. And he had to be wrestling with his brother to do this, right? If he has a all if he supposedly wore these gloves, how come the gloves were full of blood but his sweatshirt sleeve was not? Or his sweatshirt was not. And if he had to hold his brother while stabbing him several times, there's not a tremendous amount of blood on the sweatshirt that you not the amount that you think there would be. And the sweatshirt, when analyzed for this arterial spray, was found while the sweatshirt was laying flat. But the experts say that you cannot analyze blood spatter patterns on a flat t-shirt. You have to analyze the blood spatter patterns the way the shirt was while it was on the person. So if you look at this sweatshirt, and I'll post pictures of it online the where the sleeve begins like you know where the stitches of like a sleeve beginning the other side of it a large v-shaped portion that goes down to like a rib cage is completely cleared of blood showing that when that blood that got on the left sleeve got there whether it was through arterial spray or not it was folded inward. So it means that the left hand had to have been like curved across Zach's body. Okay. Or he was leaning down. So could this have happened when the 911 operator told him to lay his brother flat? Could be. Or could it have happened when if he cut his brother's throat? But you would think there would have been more blood than just that little v pattern i mean you're right but maybe it has to do with maybe it has to do with the size of the knife and the entry wounds maybe that's a good point too because we're not dealing with a, a, a standard size knife right and then the drip patterns on the socks could have been from when he was trying to lay his brother down from being on the dryer could have been could have been reasonable doubt right it's all the defense needs to create so next thing that we could talk about is zach's lack of wounds if he's using this little knife which has a plastic handle and a very small blade that's dull we have to imagine that it became slippery because of the amount of blood that was expelled from from Gregory's wounds. At no point did it slip and did Zach get any wounds on his hand. But that's what the gloves are for. Good point. The gloves don't even have any cut wounds in it, which is strange because usually that does happen where there's a slipping, but the the gloves do have like a grip to it cuz they're athletic gloves. Right. They have that material on them, so... Right. But there was no, like, fighting wounds. Like, no bruises or anything. 
just you know giving us all the facts so now let's talk about the socks if you were the defense you would claim that the socks to go out so to walk from the door of your house now the laundry door was like off to the side so you'd have to walk through dirt through grass through more dirt and then you would be burying a murder weapon in dirt walk back through your house then call 911 now you've also walked throughout an entire crime scene where there was so much blood in the entryway of the front door it's unbelievable it it literally looks like somebody poured gallons of blood on the floor that's what the entryway of the house looks like and then you walk into your garage and then now you're outside in your socks the whole time you're talking to police don't you think that you would have more dirt and blood on your socks than were present on the socks of Zachary Whitman. Yeah. I mean, I guess you're right. I don't know. No, what's your like opinion? I'm showing John the socks right um, now. I agree. But what is odd is that how there is dirt prints on the socks yes. from going outside to bury those items. Now, it makes me think. Could that be from a garage? I mean, I guess. I mean, you, you could. I mean, if the... I mean, I guess, yes. But you also had out back those little tiles. Yes. So like There's those little tile tiles. Walkway. The little yeah, so and then at, well no I'm yeah, they have like those square tiles. Yeah. So like you know, it could be from that. It not necessarily stepping on dirt directly. But then wouldn't the tiles have blood on them? I don't know. I don't know. You know what, it's it's kind of becoming more of a mystery the more we unpack it, but then it's like, okay, well, could there have been two people? Could there be somebody else? Well, I think it's easier to go in the direction of if the defense would have presented all of that information we just talked about. The expert saying that the sweatshirt was analyzed the wrong way. Um, The fact that the socks should have had more blood and should have had more dirt on them. Like all of these things could have and should have been talked about. There was explanations for the droppings of the blood on his socks. That would have been phenomenal if those expert witnesses testified. But remember, they didn't. They didn't, yeah. I'm just going to throw this at you, okay? Here we go. You knew, like, okay, this kid stayed home. Yes. Why? He said, they. It, you know what? It's very, it has never really been clear as to the reasons why he had stayed home he claimed he did spend the day like napping upstairs, that he didn't feel well, but that's really all that's gone into it. We don't know why exactly he stayed home. I would be interested to look at his attendance records at school and if staying home was something he did often. It was like the day of the pep rally, so that's days that kids usually don't want to miss school during spirit week, especially if he was an athletic kid. Um, I'm just... Uh, no, there's like yeah. many reasons why. We don't know if he took medicine because he was feeling sick we don't know i'm just trying to say like there you know they were claiming at one point that it was premeditated if he did it right and i'm just trying to make this connection where it's like okay if it was premeditated like they claim that it could have been right it's a pretty good situation think about it the father's away 700 miles away he knows the mother's at work he stayed home from school during a very 
hyped and you know hyped up event. Right. A lot of people gravitate towards that. There would be no way for anybody to know what he was doing, right? Like like you know like um, all his friends would you know maybe be like oh he was here or whatever. There's no one. There's no alibi. Yeah, like I, yeah, I guess there's no alibi. So it's just like a weird situation where everything kind of works out for him if he was willing to do this. There was no one around. Well, I also think like on a in a different boat, you could think this like, okay, sometimes brothers fight. We can't deny that. You could absolutely love your sibling, but siblings fight with each other. It's just the laws of nature, right? But Gregory was attacked as soon as he came in the house. So there, wa- it wasn't like, like, I feel like I'd be more inclined to say, oh, without a doubt, he did it. If he was there for a while, the brothers were playing a game in the backyard and they started fighting with each other. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, this was like, boom, he was attacked right away. So where was this aggression? What happened? Uh, the parents claimed that nothing happened between the boys that would have caused any type of, of argument. Yeah, I don't know. But this is why I'm saying, could there be... I know I haven't said this part of it you know, this, during this whole podcast, but but it needs to be said. What if there was somebody else with the brother... Uh, and the reason why I say that is because there are times that we look at evidence and it's, and there's like, okay, there's there's no way he did it. And then we're looking at other, other evidence and it's like, okay, well, it has to be. Like maybe he had a friend Correct. over. Correct. That's he... what I'm trying to get at here. Because if he had maybe a friend that came over or whatever, I don't know. But it would make sense. If his feet, if his socks don't match the, the crime, like there's no way there could be that like little, little blood yeah. on socks unless he was committing it or the 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 shirt the sweatshirt should have had more blood on it um he didn't wake up like like he didn't wake up uh, the he, first phone call yeah um and the commotion um 7 minutes to commit a very brutal crime but he's not out of breath i just <sighs> i don't know if the i don't think that there is a possibility of a second person being there i don't well we wouldn't know cuz they never took pictures well you're right there's pictures of the crime scene, but just not the outside luminol. Uh, uh, yeah, it's just there's times the evidence just, points I to him, and then there's evidence. There's times the evidence points away from him. So, yeah. you know, but it's just bizarre. Well, what I think is the biggest tragedy of this all is that there is, like you said, so much evidence pointing towards and away from him. But at the trial... Really, none of the evidence that pointed away from Zach Whitman was discussed as much as it should have been or proven by expert testimony because of the choices of the defense lawyer. So because of that, it's no surprise that after only 11 hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. Zach then would be sentenced to life without parole. He was going to die in prison at 15, at 20 years old now. I mean, he's been on house arrest for four and a half years. It's, it is a death sentence. That's what it is. But it's a, it's a long (laughs) awaited death sentence. And Ron Whitman was so upset 
by this sentencing that he actually had to be escorted out of the courtroom. The judge did not hold him in contempt, obviously. There's a reason why this man is so upset. His son has been murdered and his other son has been put in jail. The Whitmans have lost both of their sons, right? One to a monster, whomever it was, and the other now to the system. So Ron Whitman had to be carried out of the courtroom. Yeah, it's it's really it's it's a very complicated um, trial, and it's uh, I don't think anybody I don't think any parent wants to ever be in a situation like that. No, and at listen, all. you guys, if this case is interesting you, you have to watch the Whitmans on Investigation Discovery because it is just heart wrenching, and it really paints the picture from the perspective of the Whitman family because this story is not over yet. Trust me. Um, the Whitmans never gave up on Zach. This did take a tremendous toll on their relationship. They really kind of stopped being husband and wife and kind of more became just like partners in their crusade to get their son Zach out of prison. They go visit him every weekend. They hire private investigators. They have to be taking antidepressants. They also, and this is like, I don't know, I feel like this is torture to yourself. But they keep their house the same exact way that it was during the murder. They don't change any piece of furniture. They still have the same wallpaper up. Like the dining room literally has um, squares cut out of the wallpaper because that's where blood had spattered on the walls. And they don't move and they don't change anything because Sue and Ron Whitman hoped that if Zach was ever granted a second trial, which they tried to do for like the search warrant for um, their defense lawyer was horrible. They tried to appeal his conviction like so many times. She thought if we're granted another trial, I want the jury to be brought to my house to go through everything to see because it was her belief. And this is an interesting little like detail the prosecution and the police believed that when Gregory was running from his assailant, um, he jumped over the dog fence. But Sue believes that he was picked up by the killer because from the dining room to the laundry room, there was blood drops. But I mean, that could have been made from running, but she's she thought the blood pattern would have looked different. And that's something for an expert to say, but that was just her belief. So that's why she didn't want to change anything because she just felt like I want to show a jury what happened. But I mean, like now you're living in your own prison of this is where my son died. And this is exactly what it looked like when he died. That's a good point because not only is there one child in prison now serving a sentence, but you know what? They are too. The mother and father are both, ha- uh, they're only de- dealing with their own sentence. Having to live in that house when you know what happened to your kid, not changing anything in that house is a constant reminder and, con- and, and a constant just like torture that you couldn't do anything to help your kid and what happened. No, I know. It's tragic. That's really tragic. So... The private investigator that they hired did come up with one promising lead. A tip line was created and someone from New Freedom said that a neighbor, someone who lived within walking distance from the Whitmans, 
had talked about how the rich kids in the neighborhood had to die and how he could easily kill them and not be found out. And he wanted to do this because he said that the rich kids were making fun of his kids. Now, this man had a son in Greg's grade. And less than a year after the murder, that family moved out of town. And this conversation took place weeks before Greg's murder. I mean, that's interesting. That's an interesting fact. And I mean, I just think that's something that should be looked into, should have been looked into um, through police investigation in 1998. But this person didn't come forward. But at the same time, the police also didn't set up a tip line about the Gregory Whitman case in 1998. So maybe they would have come forward. Yeah. See, I I like when there are documentaries done and other podcasts, you know, and, you know, talk about it and stuff, because maybe shedding light on it can open up doors. You know, I mean, it's a possibility. It's it's happened before, you know, and maybe that could be investigated and, and, and it could change the whole like outcome of what what has, you know, been done here. Like maybe that little tip can turn into that their son coming out of prison. No, I completely agree with you. But before they can pursue that lead, in 2016, something major is going to happen. The Supreme Court of the United States ruled that sentencing juveniles to life without parole was cruel and unusual punishment. Cruel because they are given a life sentence before their brains have fully developed, and this does not allow for time of rehabilitation which our prison system is really supposed to be geared towards. And it's also unusual because no other country in the world sentences juveniles to life without parole, which because it's a life sentence. So it was ruled unconstitutional. Juveniles must have a chance to rehabilitate themselves to be able to function in society. Okay. So what does this mean for Zach? By the time this ruling made its way through the courts and into action, it was 2018. So he would be able to get a reduced sentence. But that meant that like, okay, if Zach wanted to get a reduced sentence, the district attorney was requiring him to admit guilt. So we had to plead guilty to third degree murder in order to get that third degree murder sentence which would mean that within 10 months he was eligible for his first parole hearing. Now, since he was in prison, Zachary Whitman had been a model prisoner, had had no infractions. So he most likely would have been granted parole if he was remorseful and if he admitted guilt. But Zach still denied the fact that he's killed his brother. And that whole, like, thing the P.I. was doing. If they would have allowed the P.I., okay, you go follow that lead. If that lead didn't pan out, then Zach would have to spend the first-degree murder sentence, sentencing time in prison, which would mean he wouldn't get out till he was 55 years old. So does he just admit guilt and get out of prison at 36? Or does he stick to his morals and stay until he's 55? Okay. And then you have a, what, a third degree murder charge? 
Yes. And on your record? Yes. If he was to get parole in what, 10 months? Yes. He'd okay. be 36 years old. Okay. I mean, this is the thing though. If you really didn't kill anybody, I'm not going to, I like personally, I'm not going to admit to that. But he has spent 16 years in jail. Would you want to spend another 20 just for your pride? Yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. But if I didn't kill nobody, I don't want to be labeled as a killer, right? Well, what's going to happen is Zachary Whitman does not want to be in prison any longer. So he chooses to say that he killed his brother. During a parole hearing, he admits to stabbing his brother because they got into a fight over the fact that a call came in from Aaron and he hung up on Aaron. And his brother didn't like that, so they got into a fight and he stabbed his brother. He said he was remorseful and he was granted parole. So now all the newspapers come out and say, Zachary Whitman finally admitted that he killed his brother. But when you look deeper into why, it's like... Well, if I, I think it's still a mystery because of, you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. If I had my parents who loved and supported me for the past 16 years and they had the financial means to take care of me so I didn't have to work and I didn't have to worry about finding a job as a, you know, an ex-felon, you know, yeah an ex-convict, then I would, I think I would do that. I wouldn't want to be in jail for another 20 years because what faith does this kid guy now have in the system no listen it's true i just uh i don't know it's so complicated and you know what the craziest part is he's going back to that house now most likely right no no okay once that happened because the only reason the whitmans were holding on to that house was because they wanted, they thought that maybe Zach would be granted a second trial. But now that he was being released, the Whitmans moved from their house in New Freedom to another house, uh, house in Pennsylvania, like a remote town. Um, it seems like they're in Lancaster County from what it looks like. But he was released on May 21st, 2019. So the Whitmans, they were free to hug their son again right zach was released he was able to be in society and they finally were able to get a chance to mourn the loss of their son greg which they never were able to do for at that point 23 years because they were fighting so hard to get their other son out of prison so it has been truly an emotional roller coaster for the whitman parents and you know, did Zach do it? I don't know, but he is now out of prison. I mean, look, if he didn't do it, I'm glad he got out, and he's one of the lucky ones for that. If he did do it, and he's, let's just say, if he, if he did do it and he did get out anyway, you know what? That's what he would have been sentenced <laughs> to as a 15-year-old yeah, anyway. Exactly, and you know what? He has to deal with that. That's his own internal battle that he's going to have to you know live with is if he did do that this is what it is this is an interesting one because i just feel like for every piece of evidence against zach there's one for him and we don't know what happens yeah i i honestly have no clue 
But I, I actually now want to go watch that <laughs> documentary now. Yeah, that's a good one. I have to. Um, before we go, uh, we really do want to hear what you have to say. So we can't wait to see what um, the conversations that we have on Instagram, Twitter, or on our Patreon page. But before we go, we do also want to thank all of our new patrons for joining Patreon and getting their extra backlog of 50 more episodes of True Crime Couple. So we just want to thank Catherine Martin, Rosalind Cox, Martin Estrada, Taylor, Devin Oscar Soros, Callie Durden, Megan Woods, Griselda Guzman, Mary, Tiffany Gutard, Joelle Simonson, Elizabeth Calhoun, Amanda Galvin, and Orca Putt. Thank you guys so much, and we hope you're enjoying the extra episodes. So we'll see you guys in two weeks. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.